Well, that's the wonderful thing about the family of God. Every one of us is important. And no, I, I'm not afraid to speak to small numbers like you, just as much as I'm quite happy to speak to the bigger numbers, because we're all important in God's sight. And we're all part of the kingdom and an essential part and I'll try and show you something today of what that really means. Yes, it was a tremendous experience yesterday with 1,400 gathered in a prayer meeting, but it was the individuals there that meant so much to me. And it was quite remarkable because we did for the first time what we do in the Ukraine, we began with a time of repentance. And that's so important. And I called the pastors and the leaders forward and they came forward because I believe that the leadership has to be the first to repent because we could do so much more. You know, one reason why I can't die is because there's a world out there to win for Christ. Yes. That's why I can't stop working. People say, you know, pastors retire. I don't retire, I simply refire. <laughs> <laughs> and it's quite interesting because in, in, in the former communist union, I find it tragic that young pastors that worked with me many years ago, many of them are no longer in the ministry. For one reason or another, they retire, they give up, they stop. We cannot stop. We have to carry on in the kingdom of God. So it is important to be here with you. And you know, there's so much I want to share and let me start by taking one particular verse. It's simply in the Acts, you know the verse, you don't even need to open your Bible, I'm sure. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit is come. Now these are the words of Jesus. And he says to his disciples in those Early days after the resurrection, you're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit has come. And you will become witnesses. And you know, to me, this is so important because we're called to be witnesses of the power and, and, and the glory of God. And, and if, you, if you look, it's these signs shall follow those that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick and they should be healed. And we have to get out there and preach that gospel with power and authority. But power and authority doesn't come from us, it comes from God. We have no power, we have no authority of, of ourselves. But what we have is the gift of God. And somehow there has to be a demonstration. And what I do believe is this, that one reason why we don't see more people come into the kingdom is because we're not demonstrating enough of the power and the glory of God. And when I 
when I see the power, when I see the miracles, and people, then they want what I have. They want what they see. Just as in the time of Jesus, they saw. And uh, Peter, in describing Jesus, says, a man, but approved of God among you by miracles and signs and wonders. And you know, they followed him for the miracles. I, I, I don't believe there's a living man who has seen today as many miracles as I've seen. I mean, it's incredible that I, I, can, I can be preaching the gospel to 10,000 people and see 3,000 people miraculously healed in one meeting. And people say to me, they say, well, when, when did you first begin to see miracles? I think what touched me, I was a teenager. And I was attending a new church in London. I grew up in London. I'm a Londoner. I'm not a Northerner. And uh, I was born in Clapham. Grew up in Croydon. And somebody in the meeting yesterday went to the same school that I went to, Salhouse Grammar School. <laughs> but the thing is this, that I always believed in miracles. I believed it was part of the ministry. I grew up with it. It's part of the ministry. And when I was a teenager, I was attending a church, and uh, one of the men there was always talking to me, talking about healing and talking about miracles, and I didn't understand why. And one day he was missing, and I said, where is he? Oh, he's in hospital. The next I heard, he died. And I understood the reason he was talking to me, and I was only a teenager, was because he was seeking comfort. He needed a miracle, and I didn't understand. And at that time, I'd never myself actually seen a miracle. But I remember when I was pastoring one of my first churches, and I was, I was only 20 years old. And there was a, a, a man in my church, he was a uh, about 70 years old, and he wouldn't go to the doctor. And when they finally got him to the doctor, they diagnosed him with, with terminal cancer. And they, they operated, they uh, removed most of his inside. I, I don't quite know, but they removed most of it. And uh, they sent him out to the hospital with the catheter and with the colostomy uh, with three weeks to live. And I was only a young pastor, and I used to visit him and pray with him. And suddenly I began to see that there was something more. And I can remember the morning I said to the church, I said, look, I believe we've got to go to his home before the morning service next Sunday. And we have to join round his bedside, and we joined hands, and we prayed and laid hands on him. And you know, something happened. I actually saw the cancer come away from his body. And so they took him back into hospital. And uh, they were going to operate to restore his functions. But he was a typical Yorkshireman. He was quite cantankerous. He was an elder of my church, and he gave me a lot of problems. <laughs> I was a young man, and he reminded me of that. You know, the trouble is, when you're in full-time ministry, you're either too young or too old. There's never a right age. I was pastoring a church when I was 18. I didn't tell people I was only 18 or they wouldn't listen to me. Now they say, you're too old, you ought to be retiring. You know, there's never age when it's right. 
It's right now, whatever age you are, do it now. I was witnessing on the, we were praying over street pastors yesterday because uh, Andrea uh, Williams from uh, Christian Concern, I asked her to come in and she said, well, uh, she was in another meeting in Oxford and I knew she wasn't going to get there till about 5.30 in the evening and she was delayed. She got there just before six. But when she came up, she said, look, I brought a street pastor who's just come out after 20 hours in prison. And it was incredible because he's actually Canadian and he is visiting the country to preach in, the street, in our streets because he thinks we don't do it. And uh, he, he said, well, of course, I, I, I was arrested. Somebody complained. And so uh, if somebody complains, the police will come. And uh, they had arrested him and accused him. But the lawyers, the Christian lawyers, went in and they were able to get him released. And there he was standing in front of us. He's only just come out of prison. Of course, I said to him, you're all right. You had 20 hours. I had a year in a prison, a communist for preaching. But the fact is this that there is a price that has to be paid for preaching the gospel. And I can remember when I was 13 that I was on the street because what we used to do on a Sunday in the summer when we'd finished the, the meeting and there weren't unsafe people in the meeting, we'd go on the street and we'd hold an open air on the street. And we would just forever be not preaching, and I, I was taught from the beginning, don't ever preach in the open air. Share your testimony. Because the interesting thing is this, if you start preaching, people will argue with you and, and stop you. But if you're sharing a testimony, nobody can stop you because you're talking about your personal experience. It's not theology. If if you, if you know Christ, share what he's done in your life. Tell them about the miracle. Look, I'm a walking, living miracle. Look what God did. That's the miracle. That's the power. And even at 13, I knew God had done a great deal in my life. And the amazing thing is this. I was speaking in London in a meeting about three years ago, and a man came up to me. I said, it's good to see you, David. He said, I remember you when you were 13 years old preaching in the street. I heard you. And I was a sinner and I didn't repent. But he says, now I found Christ. After 70 years. So we don't know the impact. But we've got to be out there witnessing and sharing in the street. I'll tell you this, when I started work, working in the city of London, and in order to pay my way through Bible college, I had to leave school early and go out and get a job for 18 months to get the money to go to Bible college. But you know, I was so impatient. I was so concerned. Do you know what I used? I was working in a bank in, in London. And I used to find the only place where I could pray was in the strong room where the money was. <laughs> Funny experience, I used to lock myself in in the lunch hour. <laughs> and I used to pray because I had to be alone to pray. And do you know what I was saying? Oh God, look, I'm, I'm 16, nearly coming up 17, and I, they won't allow me in the Bible college till I'm 18, and I can't stop, uh, you know, 
doing the work as an evangelist and I was in agony and I was crying out, oh God, don't give my job to somebody else. And for 18 months I prayed desperately, oh God, wait for me, wait for me. I can't get out there. They won't let me do it till I'm 18. They won't let me pastor. They won't let me go to even the Bible college till I'm 18. Look, the world is coming to an end. Jesus is coming. Don't give my job to somebody else. I still pray that prayer. (laughs) Oh God, don't give my job to somebody else. I want to do it. You know, if you don't know what job God's given you, get on your knees. Because God has a plan and a purpose for every single one of us. And the problem is, unless you get in the line with what God wants, nobody else can do your job. Every one of us is an individual. And God needs us for for individuals because you're in a place and a position no one else is. And you're reaching people nobody else can. If you don't know what your job is, get on your knees and ask God. So yes, I was crying out to God when I was young. And so... I, I was only 20. Well, I pastored when I was 18. You see, I was so impatient. Uh, we weren't supposed to pastor at that age. I was in the Bible college, and you're supposed to do five years training. Uh, normally, it's two years in college and three years out, but uh, this was 1950, and there was no money, and it was difficult, so they said, right, you do one year in college, and then you can go out and pastor a church and survive. (laughs) And uh, I was saying, oh God, I can't wait, I can't wait a year, and I'd only been in the college three months when... uh, uh, they, they turned to me and they said, oh, the college was in Clapham, in London. And they said, oh, there's a church down in Dorking in Surrey and the pastor's gone away to evangelize for three weeks. Oh, you're a student, you don't cost anything, go down and run the church because we weren't, we weren't allowed to be paid in those days. <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> it's never been easy for me. Nobody believes in paying evangelists. You know it's, it's a struggle to, to, to get people to pay for evangelists. They'll pay for pastors and they don't want to pay for full-time evangelists. In fact, I've never been paid to be an evangelist <laughs> in my life. And um, so I was so desperate to preach and they said, well, take the church for three weeks and I took the church and praise God, the pastor never came back. <laughs> So, and I was cheap labor, so I, I ran the church and, and I was in Bible college. Well, after I'd been there for three months, what happened? Uh, it came to the summer vacation and all the students went off on holiday and I said, look, I've got no, no more college, I've only got the church, what do I do? So I, I found a businessman, he lent me a tent, I got a tent, stuck it up in the field and began preaching the gospel in the tent. Well, what else do you do? Don't you do that? 
So that, that's all I did. I didn't have any money, but I found a Christian businessman and he'd got a marquee and he lent me a truck or something. I used to borrow a truck and go off and get tents and stick them up in the field and get some people and just preach Christ. And people get saved if you preach Christ. And you know, I don't change. I still do the same now. I still preach in the open air. By the time I was 18, I graduated from the street round the church to Hyde Park Corner. And if you want to preach the gospel, you live near enough to London, go up to Hyde Park on a, on, a, on a Friday night, you'll get a crowd there. How many of you are doing it? Well, why not? Yeah, I, I don't think it's changed. Take a soapbox up with you and jump up and stand on it and you can preach Christ. When we used to go up there, we had every kind of speaker there, and um, there were the communists, the atheists, and whatever they believed in, they'd be up there speaking, and we found out the way to draw a crowd. I'll tell you how to draw a crowd. We used to go to the speaker, we didn't care what it was, atheist, communist, or whatever, the one with the biggest crowd, and it only wants three of you, and you heckle him. Don't preach the gospel at this stage. All you do is argue with him, you see. Whatever he says, disagree and argue with him. And a, a, a crowd comes, because they like an argument. That's how you get a crowd, you see, a crowd comes. And when the crowd got big enough, we'd go and put our soapbox down, and the crowd would follow us. And there you are, then you can preach Christ. We got people saved every week. You can do it. Haven't you heard of Amy McPherson? Anybody heard of Amy McPherson? Yes the founder of the Four Square Movement. She was an actress, and you know what she used to do? She was invited to preach in the church once, and she got there, and the, only the caretaker was there. And she says, I'm not preaching. I might be doing this tomorrow morning. I'm just warning you. <laughs> she ran outside the church, grabbed a chair, stood, jumped up on the chair, and began to point out, look, look. And after a while, a crowd came around to see what she was looking at. She kept saying, look, look. And when the crowd got big enough, she said, follow me. And they followed her into the church and she preached. <laughs> Come on, you can get a crowd and you can do it. I've done it, I know. I'm not telling you to do something I don't do. Well, I've done all these tricks to get crowds. Uh, I can remember the first time under communism when I, 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 I was invited to go to a town and preach. And... Um, because it was communist, the, the pastor didn't believe that I would come. And uh, this was the trouble I found working in the communist countries. Uh, you'd get an invitation, but the pastor never seriously believed you'd turn up. And when I got there, I said, what have you done? Have you done any advertising? Have you got somewhere? No, I haven't. I said, well, well come on, we can go somewhere. He said, all right, we'll go in the, in the park. And I said, how are you going to get a crowd? He said, well, he said, under communism, we've got loudspeakers on every lamppost, broadcasting propaganda and music, and it's always propaganda. He said, I know the lady that's in control of it. So he got hold of the lady in control of it and announced the meeting. And then I found out when we were in the park that we were still connected into the sound system. So when I was preaching, it was going on the sound system all over the town. And I was just calling people out there. I know you're listening to me. I can't see you, but I want you to come and give your life to Christ. And they would come. 
But you see, this is what you, this is how I start to preach. I didn't start in big auditoriums with a few thousand people. Yes, now I get there because time is short and I don't have more than another 40 years left in my life. I'm 86 and I'm not going to live for more than another 40 years. And I've got to get the gospel preached because the world isn't saved yet. And this nation isn't. But you see, it's up to us. We're the only ones God's got. I mean, don't say, well, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. I can't tell you. I'll tell you what. God's got to use the talent that he's got. And you're the only ones he's got left. Come on, we want to be out there on the street. I tell you, if I were here, I'd, I wouldn't preach to empty seats. I'd get a crowd in somehow and preach to them. I remember when, when I was pastoring, because for a number of years I did pastor a church, and um, I was always evangelizing, and I was getting young people in. I ran a youth club. And uh, they loved it because we, we did all sorts of things, you see, with, the, with these young boys. And the condition of the youth club was they could come during the week and they could have all the activities. One condition. If you don't come on Sunday night, you don't come in the week. So they came on Sunday night. And Sunday night, I preached the gospel. But then the old ladies in my church were complaining I can see I've got some competition over here. <laughs> All right, are you going to preach instead of me? <laughs> yeah, I thought you were. Come on then. <laughs> so the ladies used to complain about these boys. They said, look, pastor, it's terrible. They make so much noise in the back of the church. We can't worship God. And they said, Pastor, stop them. Don't let them come. I said, sorry, ladies. These boys need Jesus. I said, don't grumble to me. Grumble to God up there. Give him your complaints. I said, I want you to, each one of you, choose one of those troublesome boys and pray him into the kingdom. So, so they, what happened to these boys? It was quite a miracle, you see. What happened is, they got saved. And do you know, one of those boys pastors the largest church in the north of England, and where I live in the north of England, three of the churches, the pastors, are those boys who found Christ because the women in the church prayed. Do you understand what God can do in a simple way? And I want to challenge you, because this is what God says. Now, this man, I'm telling you, when I was just 20 years old, and this man is dying of cancer, and God had healed him, and he went back into the hospital, and they were going to restore, he was given three weeks to live, and they were going to restore his function. And he was so cantankerous that after a week, they threw him out of the hospital and refused to operate. God so restored that man, he was back in the church and he never ever died of cancer. He simply died of old age. You see, God works these kind of miracles. 
But what we need to have is an experimental faith. You know, this is part of what I'm talking, well, what they're sharing in, in, in this book that they've written about me is how I had to live an experimental life. I had to do the things other people wouldn't do. And even now, at my age, I'm still doing the things that nobody else can do. In the Ukraine, which has now touched the whole government, Nobody, they said, no Ukrainian could unite all the pastors. Only when I came as an Englishman, and I've worked there for more than 50 years, they responded to me. You see, God always has somebody to do the job. But that's your position. You've got to be the one that God uses. But it's what's in your heart. Do you want God to use you? And I mean, I'm going to really challenge you, and I'm sorry I'm not going to let you out till I finish challenging you. Are you willing to let God use you where you are? Well, then put your life on the altar and God will use you. They say uh, it's a, a tremendous story how that one old preacher. He'd come to the end of his life and he said, I've never led one person to Christ. And he was sat on a wall on the side of the road. And he's saying, oh God, all these years and I've done nothing. I've pastored, but I've not led one person to Christ. And the young man came by and he stopped him and the young man just looked and said, why are you so sad? And he said, because I've not led anybody to Christ. He led that young man to Christ. That young man became a powerful evangelist who won thousands for Christ. Because an old preacher in his despair said, oh God, I've not done the job. Do you understand? Don't forget what I had to pray when I was a teenager. Oh God, don't give my job to somebody else. If, if only some of you here, if only one or two of you could so sense, look, I'm going to work for God that you could pray like that and say, oh God, tell me what thy job is, show me what thy job is, and then don't give my job to somebody else. Because if you don't do it, God's to find somebody else. But you're in a unique position that nobody else is. Do you understand? I remember I had such an experience as only two years ago. Every year, now it's become twice a year, it used to be once a year, I go to the mountains to pray. And I've had so many powerful experiences and two years ago, I was preaching to Vietnamese refugees, you know, boat people, as they call them, who escaped from North Vietnam from the communists. And there are thousands of them. And, and, and the, 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 the chief pastor, he made his own boat to escape, a homemade boat with his family. And the boat was sinking in the middle of the ocean. And it was only the fact that he was picked up by a German freight ship 
And they ended up not where they'd intended to go, they ended up in Germany. And so he's built a mission there. And every year they get almost a thousand of these Vietnamese people for a conference. And for seven years, I've gone every year to preach to them. And when I queried and uh, I, I said, look, you've got a meeting in the morning and you've got a meeting in the evening. Uh, and I said, who's the preacher in the afternoon? He said, we don't have a preacher in the afternoon. I said, what do you do? He said, they go on the street. And what you tell them to do in the morning, they do it in the afternoon. And then they bring the people in the evening to get them saved. They go on the street. And the last time I was there, what was happening? They had actually had people from Vietnam who'd come out across to share with us. And, and they preached. And what they did one Christmas, they'd actually asked me to go. Thank God I didn't go because some of them got put in prison. And I've done one time in prison. I don't want the second. But what they do is this. On Christmas Day they, without permission, took a football stadium and then to make a platform in the communist countries, you know, all the furniture's the same, it all comes out of the same factory. All the tables are the same shape and side and all the chairs are the same. So they take from their apartments, they take the tables and the chairs and they put the tables together and jump up and preach Christ. And they get so many people converted. Okay, so they get put in prison, so what? They're preaching Christ. And the pastor was saying in Germany, he said at the lunch table, we were talking to him, and he said, you know, when I send my people into Vietnam, I tell them to hold the funeral service before they go. Because they may never come back. But they go. And I remember that time two years ago when they had a, a, a choir of young girls. And because I'm English, most of it was in Vietnamese. I have an interpreter. But they were singing for me in English the song that you sang. Open my eyes. I want to see Jesus. But you know, there was something. Those girls, as they sang, and they did understand the words, and as I looked at them, I saw that they, were, they weren't singing a song. They were actually saying it and praying it. I want to see Jesus. And you know, it so touched me. And I left them and I was on my way to the mountains to pray. And when I'd finished uh, three days with them, I left and I went to the mountain. And all the way, I'm, I can't get that out of my heart, out of my mind. I want to see Jesus. And when I got on the mountain, I'm saying, I want to see Jesus. And then I realized the truth. We cannot see Jesus. Nobody can see God. We can't see Jesus. And then I realized that the only person who's seen something close was Moses, where he saw the hand of God writing on the tablets of stone. And I said, oh God, show me your hand. If I cannot see your face, just, that's me two years ago. I'm saying, oh God, show me your hand. 
But what is the hand of God? If you see the hand of God, what is the hand of God? It's not writing, it's the miracles, it's the power. The hand of God is the miracles, the healings, and all the other miracles. Healings are just a fraction. Don't just look at healings. I see every kind of miracles. And I said, oh God, I want to see your hand. And I'm crying out to God on the top of that mountain. And that particular day, although I was 10,000 feet, 3,000 meters up in the air, the cloud was so thick that it covered the whole of the mountain. You couldn't see a thing. Normally you can see for hundreds of miles from that height. And I could see nothing and the whole sky was covered. And I was saying, oh God, I want you to show your hand. I want you to, in my life, I want to see more miracles. I want you to show yourself. I said, oh God, if you will show yourself, open the sky for a moment. Let me see for a moment blue sky instead of this cloud. If you will show me your hand, open the cloud. And then suddenly the cloud above me opened and I saw the blue sky. You know, since then my ministry's been different because I've seen more of the hand of God in my life. You see, even in my life, something has to change. It's not enough. I can't look at the past most people, when they get to my age, they're looking at the past, what happened. I remember because at one time I was talking about the miracles in my life, you know, how I was healed of cancer, throat cancer by a miracle. And when I was healed of cancer, the cancer did not disappear. God cut it out with a knife. The surgeons said, somebody has operated, we can see the scar where somebody has cut the cancer out. You know the story about my release from prison, how after praying, God, instead of my being in the prison for 10 years, five years for Bible smuggling, and five years for preaching the gospel, God, by a miracle, released me after only one year. But that's not enough. And I was seeking more, and I was saying, oh God, I'm tired of talking about the stories of the past. I want a fresh miracle. I want another miracle. So I got lung cancer. And I prayed, and God miraculously healed me of lung cancer. And that's only 15 years ago. You see, we need to see more and more miracles. I'm not satisfied with the past. I'm looking to the future. I mean, it was wonderful yesterday to see 1,400 people in that prayer meeting, but we're not looking back, we're looking forward. But the next meeting, we're going to have 7,000. You see, we mustn't just look back. Look what I did. I'm looking forward what God is going to do in the future. And it's getting bigger and bigger. I remember how in, in Lithuania we saw a phenomenal miracle. Uh, we, we were in the big football stadium for three days and we were getting 12,000 people there. And I can remember on one night, I'd been calling them to repent and you get anything up to two, three, four thousand people repenting. 
And then after that, I was praying for the sick. And you, it's normal to see about 3,000 people healed. And they come on the platform and testify. Well, I, it isn't just a matter they're healed. If they're healed, you come up here. and you Because it's the evidence of the witness that they're healed that's the miracle. And you get people testifying of healing of cancers, of blindness, of being crippled. I've seen so many broken legs healed, people jumping up and down. In fact, uh, I'll come back to Lithuania. Uh, I saw an incredible miracle in Germany. I was invited to speak to a group of people. And uh, when I said, who are these people? They said they're esoteric, and I, my office translated that as being that they were sort of religious people. But it turned out they weren't. They were spiritists, and these were spirit healers, you know, healing through spiritism. And uh, they said to me, don't preach. I said, what about the... No, they don't want you to read the Bible. And I said, what, what... Why am I here? They said they're here to see if your God works bigger miracles than their gods. And so somebody said, oh, well, bring someone down who's maybe got a pain in their arm. I said, that won't convince anybody. I said, I want you to bring forward the person who's got more sickness or problems than anybody else. They brought a young man down. And this young man had been hang gliding, you know, jumping off mountains with a parachute. I'm sure you all do it, you young people. <laughs> oh, come on, you've got to do some adventure somewhere. If you don't do it preaching the gospel, jump off a few mountains. <laughs> Teach yourself what adventure really is. And this guy, the parachute hadn't opened and he'd smashed down to the ground. And so when they brought him in, he was crippled, paralyzed down one side. He couldn't speak. Uh, he's got head injuries, every kind of injury. What was I going to do? I just called upon God. Lord, you're going to have to show your power here somehow. And God instantly healed that man. But you see, these people weren't Christian. And we were meeting, there was 400 of these people, and that we were meeting in the ballroom of an expensive hotel. And you know, they did something I've never seen Christians do. These spiritists had never seen the miracle before, and they were standing on their chairs with excitement. I don't know what's wrong with Christians, you don't get excited like that. I'd rather preach to sinners, they respond. And I'll tell you what happened. I just looked and on the front row I could see there was a, a lady on the front row and she didn't get up and stand in, up on a chair. And I said, uh, what's wrong? Oh, she said, I've got polio and I can't stand. I discovered afterwards she was the witch in the forest that they took all the kids to for healing. And what she was doing, not healing them, but filling them demonic spirits. And here she is, she's saying, I can't get up because I've got polio. And I said to her, will you let me cast the demons out? She said, yes. And I cast the demons out and she got up. 
And then I called them to repent, and they repented. It took three months for the local church to cancel these 400 people. Why? Because you need the demonstration of the power of God. Look, are you seeing that kind of demonstration in your life? Come on, let's get real. I can't operate without it. I can't. And so I was in Lithuania, and we'd only got 12,000 people there every night. And this particular night, I'd preached the gospel, and there was one man there who's a member of the government. And he didn't repent. And he told us afterwards, he said, well, he said, I didn't believe that sort of religious stuff. But he said, when David said that he wasn't a healer, because I'm not a healer, I'm not going to heal the people. And I tell the people, I say, I'm not a healer, Jesus is. And I say, if you want a miracle, you do what the Bible said. Jesus said, these signs will follow those that believe. They'll lay hands on the sick and they'll be healed. And I say, if you're sick, lay your hands on yourself. And I teach them what to pray. I teach them a prayer to call on Jesus. Not ask me. If you want to be healed, I'm in here. If you want to be healed, don't ask me. There's only Jesus is going to do it. Ask him direct yourself. And this man was total unbelief. He was grossly overweight. And so he put his hand on his stomach. And he said, well, I didn't believe that David said to pray this prayer and I called on Jesus to heal me. Instantly, he lost 20 kilos in weight and his trousers fell off. (laughs) So would yours if you lost 20 kilos. So he couldn't come on the platform and testify. But I tell you what, he went back to his office in the government the next day and everybody said, Oh, what happened? He said, boy, he said, I called on Jesus. Look what Jesus did. Do you know what the government did? The government called me back. And they said, we'll do two things. We're going to add 3,000 more seats into the stadium. And on the first day, we want you to preach to us in the government We're such big sinners, we don't want to confess publicly. Well, if you know anything about government, that's true today. And so what did they do? I went back and they set up a meeting. And I got there, and I didn't know what they were going to do. And I found out that they'd hired the Catholic cathedral. I said, what about worship? Well, we don't understand that. So we've hired the National Orchestra and the National Choral Society. And I said, what are you going to do? They said, we're going to sing Handel's Messiah. What do I do? Well, we stop in the middle. You talk about Jesus, call us to repent, and then pray for the sick, and then we finish. So we stopped in the middle. I preached Christ, called them to repent, and they did. I prayed with the sick, and they were healed. And then we all stood and sang the Hallelujah Chorus. But you know, the impact was so strong. Every time now where I hold a crusade in a country, the first day is with the government. Now that's the miracle that followed. 
Sometimes we take the opera house. Sometimes we take a, a, a cathedral. And I've seen members of government. I've seen members of parliament, members of the European parliament, publicly repent. Why? Simply because God works miracles. It's not my preaching. It wasn't because I healed anybody. And all that came because God so dramatically healed that man that they saw the evidence. You know, we've got to have the evidence. I know that I'm saved and I know God has filled me with the Holy Spirit, but I need to see the evidence. Wherever I'm going or what I'm doing, I need the evidence. These signs will follow those who believe. What evidence is there that you know Christ? What evidence is there that you believe? What evidence is there that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit? Come on. What evidence is there to demonstrate to the unbelievers outside? You know, I have such a passion and a love for the sinner. Why? Because I spent a year in a communist prison. Oh, our hotels in this country are, 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 are luxury hotels compared to conditions there. Can you imagine being shut up with a whole group of men in a tiny room? It was just six... Uh, what was it, two meters by four, six feet by 12. And we were so crowded, we were lying on the floor and you're just lying next to each other, just bodies on straw on the floor. The only toilet was a stinking hole in the corner and we weren't even allowed out for meals. And I was there for more than six months before they moved me and conditions got worse. And my best friend in there was a murderer. And I was in with drug smugglers, drug addicts, murderers, every kind of criminal. But you see, I didn't see them for what they were. I didn't see them as drug smugglers and murderers. I saw them because every one of them was somebody's son, somebody's brother, somebody's husband. I didn't see the murderer. I didn't see him as a murderer. I saw him as a man with a broken life who needed Christ. Do you understand? And with those men, I saw the potential that if they could come to Christ, look what God could do with them. There was a one time when I was in Siberia and I was preaching in the town. Every single pastor in the region except one had been a convict in prison. Come on, those are real pastors. And the only one that hadn't been in prison, it was because his father was a, a secretary in the Communist Party. In fact, I remember one of the biggest meetings I held out there. We held the meeting on the Friday and the Saturday. And the pastor was too afraid to have the meeting because he hadn't got permission on the Sunday because he'd escaped from prison. He said, if they see me, they'll arrest me and put me back in prison. And he was the pastor. I said, what are you afraid of? We will have the meeting on the Sunday. We did. Because we saw so many people repent and come to Christ. That time I spent three months in Siberia. Can you imagine? 
in the early days of the collapse of the communist system, I determined to take an army to Siberia. We took 400 people for three months. Can you imagine? It was going to cost in those days to take them, fly them in and out. Not, I'm not talking about across into France or Switzerland. I'm talking about the far side of Siberia. And the cost of getting 400 there and bringing them back and of providing for all the crusades out the stadiums and feeding them everything, the total bill was in, I'm talking about tw more, uh, 24 years ago, the cost was more than 2 million pounds and I didn't have 2 million pennies. What did I do? I just began to pray the money in. Slowly we got money in, eventually we got enough money to, um, to pay the one-way tickets. So I started giving out the tickets to the 400. And they just looked at me and they said, you want us to go for three months to Siberia? Where's the money for the food? And by the way, these are one-way tickets. We want return tickets. Now how could I tell them I didn't have any money? Now, what would you do? Okay, some of them are charged. You wouldn't dare go. I just looked at the people. I said, what did Jesus say? Didn't he say, go into all the world and preach the gospel? Now, come on, did he say that to you? And so I said to them, did Jesus say, go into all the world, begin in Jerusalem, then Judea, and then the ends of the earth. I said, Siberia is the end of the world. You know, if you go to Siberia and you go just beyond, you fall off. <laughs> I know, I've been there. <laughs> but the people are saying, where are the return tickets? I said, Jesus said, go. Do you agree? He said, go. Come on, is that right? Yes. But I said, he never said, come back. But he didn't. Do you read your Bible? He didn't say come back. Yes, of course, God raised the money, we brought them back. But you see, do you understand? It's, it's the experiment. It's putting your faith into action. You know, even, even the Apostle Paul had to say, some say they have faith, and some say they're doing the work. I say to you, show me your faith by your works. You know, you've got to prove that faith works. How are you going to con convince the unbelievers? I tell you, I'm not talking about your church, but I can tell you, I, I've been in a lot of churches, and I've sat, sometimes I go in and I sit at the back, you know, I don't always preach. I like to sneak in at the back when they don't know me. And I've sneaked in the back of some churches and I've watched what's going on and I think, if those are Christians, I don't want that they've got. You know, there are some Christians that are so miserable, they're so burdened down and with this problem and that problem. You want to listen to them talk after church. And I said, I, if that's Christianity, I don't want it. And that's the trouble today. Because the unbelievers are looking at you. What kind of a faith do you have?
And I can tell you this, when I preach Christ, I tell them a Christ of power who changes men. And I tell them what God is doing. And they want what I have. They want this Christ. They want to know this Jesus that I know. You know that God called me to work in in Israel. And God called me to work amongst the Holocaust survivors. And I remember the first time when they set the meeting up there. And yeah, in those days, I was going to get two, three, four hundred of these unbelieving Jews. And I knew that every one of them was a survivor from the Holocaust. And I said, how, how can I go? And I cried out to God and I was so desperate. And I, I actually, I prayed something that frightened my staff. I said, I'm so afraid. Uh, what can I say to these people? Look, these are people who, because they, they know our God. You know, the Jewish God is our God. And because of their faith in him, they were brutally tortured, burned alive. They, they, they were put in the gas chambers. And before I went, I read the story of some of them, like a 12-year-old boy. He was from Warsaw. He was in the Warsaw ghetto. And one day they came and they took his family. And they put them on a train and they got into Auschwitz. And when this 12-year-old boy got off the train, he and his father, because they appealed strong, were put in the labor camp. And his mother and his baby sister didn't even get a meal. They went straight into the furnace. And he saw his father died in there. He survived. How can I preach Christ to them? And I said, oh God, if you don't go with me, if you're not going to work a miracle with these people, I said, and it's true, because I, I upset my staff in the office. I said, oh God, if you're not going with me, let the plane crash, because I cannot face them alive if you're not with me. And when I got there, I said, why do you come and listen to me? They said, we have come, and we'll listen to you read from your Bible and talk about your Jesus on one condition. And that is, if that Jesus is real, he will heal our sicknesses. And these are survivors from the Holocaust, older than me, with every imaginable kind of sickness. And God healed them. And you know what I have in my office? I have the, the picture that they sent me. I was looking at it only two days, three days ago. And on that picture, it's a picture of the people that died in the Holocaust and superimposed on the top are the pictures of the ones that Jesus healed in that first meeting. Do you understand the reality? But you see, we have an understanding. We've got to know this kind of God. But it, you see, it's not even just in, in the preaching the gospel. We need an experimental faith in our own lives. We need something that's real and powerful. I believe that Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. But you know what the scripture says about the church? Jesus said... The five wise and the five foolish virgins. And you know that's the church today. 
and half had no oil in their lamps. And when they were sent to the supermarket to buy the oil, the bridegroom came and the five wives were inside. And the other five, when they'd come back from the supermarket, that Jesus said the door was shut. And they didn't get in the door. What a challenge, Christian. Are you so full of the Spirit of God that you will get in the kingdom? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a marriage feast. And the king sends out the commandment to the invited guests. And they all make excuses. And Jesus said, I will not have empty places go into the highways and the byways and bring the wretched, the homeless, the beggars, and fill the kingdom of God with the poor and the unwanted and the rejects. And there's going to be more rejects and unwanted and homeless in the kingdom of God than sanctimonious religious people. Oh God, give us reality in our faith. Give us reality in our lives. Do you know, I couldn't do the job that I do if I didn't have reality. But Jesus said in Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel and these signs will follow those that believe. If there's no evidence of your Christian experience to the unbelieving world outside, where is your faith? Where is your Christ? Where is your salvation? If your life is not marked as being different, then where is your life? Come on. If I'm not different to others, if my faith is not real and practical, look, the reason I see so many miracles of healing is I tell the people bluntly, twice I've had cancer. And the first time I was still pastor of the church. Where I am now, I'm not pastor now, I haven't been pastor there for 50 years. But 50 years ago, I was pastor of the church. We'd seen miracles when I held a crusade there. We still got the newspaper, which says the blind could see and the cripples were healed. The newspaper published the story, and it's still there. And when I got sick with cancer, the church turned on me. And they said, look, it's all right him praying for other people. You see, when he's sick, he'll be the first to go to the hospital and get treated. I couldn't go to the hospital. Oh, I had to go to get the diagnosis because as my daughter, who's a nurse, she was there yesterday, you know what she said to me? She said, Dad, if they don't prove that you've got cancer, you can't claim a miracle. No, it's true. So I had to go and get the evidence. But the thing was this. The church looked at me and said, does he believe himself what he preaches? It's about time somebody challenged your faith that way. No, it is. I'm sorry. I want, I, I, I want, if I pray something for you, I'm going to pray that you get challenged. Challenged over your faith. Challenged over your life. It's all right singing and worshiping God. It's, that's wonderful. I need it. But boy, oh boy, when you finish singing, get out and put it into practice. If you don't, you become like empty vessels. 
and empty vessels make the most noise. Uh -huh. So what did I have to do? I could not have any treatment. I had no, I didn't have a drop of medication. I had no chemotherapy. I had no operation. Nothing. I couldn't. And you know, I prayed for three months. You probably know the story, but I'm only reminding you. For three months I prayed, and did God answer no? And at the end of three months, I, I was convinced that a miracle must have happened, and I went back. I wasn't preaching. I had to have somebody else. I couldn't speak. I had to write things down. And I went back to the doctors to try and tell them that I'd been praying for three months and I was healed. And they looked at me on that Friday afternoon and they laughed and they said, ha, there is no God and what's the point of praying? Your cancer has now become so big that if we don't operate immediately, you'll die. Now that's the test, isn't it? And so what did I do? That was on the Friday. I spent all day fasting and praying, wouldn't you? I'd only got till Monday. If you've got three days to live, what do you do? Do you want to see what I'm talking about? I'm talking about reality in my life. I'm not a preacher. I often say I'm no preacher. I just get out there and do the job. In fact, do you know why I left my church? I left the church and gave up the ministry. I left my, gave up my salary and gave ev up everything for two reasons. I'll tell you one reason why. I'll tell you the other. It's that, you know what God said to me one day when I was preaching? God said to me, shut up. Stop talking. I'm tired of listening to you. That's God. He said, I want you to go out there and do all the things you tell other people to do and don't come back till you've done them. That's why I don't come back. I can't be a pastor because I haven't finished doing it. So what happened with the cancer? I think you know the story. On the Sunday, I changed my prayer and I prayed the most dangerous prayer of my life. I believed that God was calling me to leave my church and go to Russia and Israel. I said, oh God, if you want me to stay in England, don't heal me and I'll go to the doctors tomorrow morning and I'll tell them you couldn't do it. But if you want me to leave my church, give up my salary and step out in faith and go to Russia and Israel, I need a miracle. If you want me to go to Russia, heal me now. And I'm extremely impatient. I'm not like you people, I'm impatient. And I said, oh God, I want the answer before Monday. God gave me the answer. I won't tell you exactly how, but he gave me the answer. And in fact, what he said to me, you have to persuade them to look three times. They'll look twice and they'll see the cancer and they'll look the third time and it'll be gone. And they put the instruments down because they, they can put instruments down to see the cancer. And they pulled them out and they put them down the second time and they pulled them out and they were angry. And they were very rough when they put them down the third time and they pulled them out. And when they pulled them out, they shouted at me, three surgeons with their knives all sharpened up because they were going to kill this Christian. And they said, who did it? I said, what do you mean? Because I now had a voice. And they said, 
since we saw you on Friday, somebody has made an operation and cut the cancer out with a knife and we can see the scar where they've operated. Tell us the name of the doctor. <laughs> I sure told him. I said his name is Jesus and he's the God you don't believe in. And here's the evidence. You see, look, there has to be evidence in our lives. The people I work with out there, they're the drug addicts, they're the criminals. I told the story yesterday of the prisoner preaching with 1,400 criminals, 200 mass murderers, 400 serious sex offenders, and 800 criminals, all worse. Out of that prison came 140 pastors, evangelists, and missionaries. Give me the drug addicts, they make the best pastors. Give me the criminals and make the best evangelists. What kind of a life do you have? What kind of a God do you have? What relationship do you have with God? I was taken before a court, accused of preaching and of Bible smuggling. Thank God I was found guilty. Thank God, I would have been ashamed if there'd not been enough evidence to convict me. If you were taken on Monday morning before a court on trial, is there enough evidence to convict you of your Christian faith? If not, get out there and get that evidence in your life. I'm talking about reality. I'll tell you the other side of the story tomorrow. Because I'm going to go into it and how you can have power with God. You see, so many people come to me and they say, Oh, pray over me. I want power from God. I don't have power from God. I have power with God. And there's only one man in the Bible of whom God said that. Jacob. As a prince, you have power with God and with man and you have prevailed. And he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Has God changed your name? The Bible says we will get a new name in the kingdom. I know what mine will be already. I know what I'm called down here. I'm called a rebel. Because even my staff know. If they want me to do something, they don't say, oh, come on, David, do this. They simply say, David, you can't do this. It's impossible. And I say, with God, nothing is impossible, and let's prove it. I think you all know that the reason I got involved in the East, in the communist countries, and in Israel, was because in 1961 I heard that there was a, to be a Pentecostal conference. For the first time for 2,000 years, Pentecostal people were coming from all over the world, on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, we would be in the upper room. Oh, I said, look, on the day of Pentecost, there'll be another outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I have to be there. 
and I didn't have any money. I was an evangelist. I didn't have the money. What was I going to do? Well, I was determined to go. It was going to cost in those days 135 pounds. That was a lot of money, 1961. When I went to work, my salary was 135 pounds a year. <laughs> When I was a pastor, I don't think I ever earned more than 20 pounds a week. <laughs> do you understand? So what did I do? I said, well, it's nearly all land between here and Israel. I'll get a car and I'll drive the way. And my evangelist team all turned to me and said, David, if you're going, we'll come with you. But when they found I was meant it and I was actually going to go, they all made excuses. Not one of them came. But I set off, and I became the first man to make the overland crossing between England and Israel. I got a medal from the Israeli government. I attended the conference. And the thing was this, what I found out, there were 3,000 people there, and I was waiting on the day of Pentecost for the Holy Spirit. You would, wouldn't you? I was waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall, and I was going to come back fired up. And I found there were 2,999 tourists. I seemed to be the only one that had gone there and struggled to go all the way by road. I, I, I became the first person ever to make, I was on television for that. I, you're too old, you wouldn't remember those days. You're too, sorry, you're too young, you wouldn't remember those days. But the thing was this, nothing happened. And I remember exactly 40 years, almost to the day, 40 years later, 2001, I was back in Jerusalem renting the same hall to evangelize. And walking around that hall in Israel and praying, I was angry with God. I said, I came here 40 years ago on the day of Pentecost. Nothing happened. There was no fire. There was no explosion. There was nothing. Oh God, why? And God stopped me in my tracks. He said, what happened 40 years ago? I said, oh God, forgive me. He changed my whole life. I gave up my church. And for 40 years, I've been evangelizing all across the Soviet Union in Israel. God changed my life. God changed my life. Not the way I expected. Not speaking in tongues and tongues of fire from heaven. God changed my life so dramatically. Do you understand? I pray that you will have a real personal encounter with God and that the evidence will show that you've met with God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that these people will have an experience of you that is so real that it will change their lives. I don't care how old they are. They're not as old as me. And oh God, you're going to change my life. You changed my life yesterday. Oh God, change their lives and do something in every single one of them here so powerful that everybody else will see the change. And oh God, if 
If you don't do that, bring them up before a court. Come on, Lord. Get them arrested. And let them find evidence to convict them. And if there's no evidence, shame them. Lord, it's about time you did that in the church. And do it again in my life. Because what happened yesterday isn't enough. I've got to forget the things that are behind and look forward towards the future. My life in Christ is not yesterday. My life in Christ is only today and tomorrow. And I want to remind you, your life in Christ is not your past. It's your today and your tomorrow. Oh God, make this real to these people. Oh God, if you make it real, you can change the whole of Britain with these people here. Oh God, if this is real, you could take half these people and change the whole of London. And if you take them all, they could change the world. Oh God, change me dramatically and powerfully every day until people can see Christ in me. Oh God, let them see Christ in us. That they don't see us anymore, but only the Christ we love and serve. Oh God, change Basildon by the preaching of the gospel here in this place. Oh God, send the Holy Spirit and let that Spirit fall here, not in emotion. But Holy Spirit, when you come, you change lives. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit's not just speaking in tongues, but it's the power of God in you. In Jesus' name, amen. And tomorrow I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to tell you what God showed me two years ago, how your life can change. Oh, I just pray that God will just convict you and convince you tonight that something has to change. I don't want you to be the same again. I, I know what happened yesterday. I know it was a day of prayer, and I know just what about three of you were there. But I can tell you something now. I have one man who is my intercessor. And in the five years he's praying for me, the whole of my life has changed. He wasn't there yesterday. He was in Barbados. But he's talked to Katie on the phone. And he said, yesterday will change David's life permanently. Do you understand? God bless you. How many of you want this kind of power and change in your life? Well, I want you to stand. And God help you if you stand and don't do what you say. Oh, I, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm no good preacher. You'll never invite me back here again by the time I finish with you tomorrow. Because I'll tell you this, if you make a promise to God and don't keep it, don't expect to get through those pearly gates.
Because what I've learned with God is if I make a promise to God and I don't keep it, how do I expect God to keep his promises to me? Come on, it's a two-way relationship. I'm sorry, it's a two-way relationship. And I daren't, at my age, say something to God and not do it. I don't really want to tell you, but we were so heavily in debt at the turn of this year and we couldn't pay our debts in Israel. And we were going to be sued because there was no money and we prayed there was no money. And when I prayed, God said, David, you're going to borrow every cent of that money and pay the bill. I'm not going to tell you how much it was. It took me a month to raise the money and I paid every cent of that bill. And if God doesn't give it back, I will be bankrupt shortly. Why? Because I have a covenant with God. If he says, do it, for God's sake, do it. Because God never fails. I will not go bankrupt. God will not fail me. God will give me back every cent I borrowed. He'll clear all my debts. And he's going to open the windows of heaven and pour me out a blessing bigger than you could ever contain. I've got a bigger store. I've got a bigger reservoir than you. And God's going to fill it. Malachi 3. Bring me all the tithes into the storehouse and prove me now. If I will not pour you out a blessing so big you can't contain it. That's Malachi 3.10. If I ask you to give, I've given more than you give. I'm the largest donor in the mission. Did you know that? And I don't get a salary. Why? Because I'm a God. Oh, Father, I pray for these people. Lord, let them talk to you now. But, oh God, be so strict with them that they will not make a promise to you that they will not keep. Because, oh God, if they make a promise and don't keep it, then you are not going to honor your word. Now I want you to make a promise to God as to what you want and what you will do. Don't tell me, you tell God what you're going to do right now. Don't tell him something that you can't keep. It might be impossible. The things that God tells me to do are totally impossible. The things I tell God I'll do are totally impossible. How did I manage to preach to nearly 5,000 people in Caesarea a year ago? It was impossible. You can't do it. It's against the law in Israel. But the devil didn't stop me. We did it. Oh God, just touch this whole meeting now by your Holy Spirit. Bring conviction tonight. And oh God, give them the grace and the faith to make a covenant with you. Now make that covenant with God. And Father, I pray that you will give every one of them the faith and the courage to fulfill those promises.
And Lord, through this small group here, change Britain. You don't need a thousand and ten thousand. You can do it through a hundred or fifty if we give our lives to him. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray the Holy Spirit to seal this meeting. Holy Spirit, you are the seal of God, as we're going to share tomorrow. You are the sealing on our lives. That heavenly imprint, oh God, with everyone here who means business with you, everyone that means business with you, put that stamp, that mark, on their lives now by your hand touch them not with emotion but with conviction in Jesus name Amen Amen How many of you want a miracle of healing? Put up your hands Right Father, I'm asking you that those who've raised their hands, you'll work a miracle. And the first part of the miracle is that you'll give them faith to believe for a miracle. In Jesus' name. If you want a miracle of healing, put your hand where your sickness is. Wherever the symptoms are, wherever the pain, if it's your legs, you sit down if you have to, whatever, put with your hand there. Father, I'm praying that you're going to visit these people with a gift of faith. And now I ask you, you put your hand there, I want you to say this prayer with me. Say, oh God, I believe in miracles. You're a God that answers prayer. Jesus, you said to me, these signs will follow if I believe. I will put my hands on the sick and they'll be healed. And to demonstrate this in my life, I put my hand on my sickness. And in Jesus' name, I command that sickness, go! Devil, get out of my life. My body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And there's no room for sickness. Get out. By the power of Jesus' name. Right now, Jesus, put your hand on mine. Come on, Jesus. Touch me. And when you touch my hand, I shall be healed. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now I'm going to challenge you. Do what you could not do. If you had pain in your legs, lift them with that. You wouldn't realize that 20 years ago I was diagnosed with osteoarthritis. They wanted to give me a new hip. I don't want anybody else's hip. I want God. And I'm totally healed. I don't have, a, I don't have any pain whatsoever. Now, how many of you can tell that something has happened? Your pain's gone, the symptoms have gone. Come on. 
Come on, isn't, isn't there anyone who can experience that? Well, if you haven't experienced it right now, I tell you, the sinners, they, they're easier to teach. They, they don't have the doubts. They believe, they believe more quickly. Well, I'll tell you what to do. You just keep praying, go home tonight, come back tomorrow and tell us that God's healed you. All right? Because what I find with so many people, the miracle happens when they go out. In, in, with Jesus, it says, with the lepers, as they went, they were cleansed. And I find so many people that come, well, people come back after five years or ten years saying, you remember me, I was dying with cancer and God healed me, I was blind and God opened my... They come back five, ten years later and tell me. So, come back in the morning and tell me that God's worked the miracle, all right? God bless you. I better shut up. <laughs> You, you see, I want to encourage you because not only did I have the throat cancer, I had lung cancer 15 years ago. Again, God healed me by a miracle. I had osteoarthritis. God healed me by a miracle. You know, I can run and jump. and It's God's power that keeps me young. Well, it is. What else is it? Come on. <laughs> In a few weeks... I shall be 86 years old and I've got another 34 years yet of full health and so I shall be preaching the gospel and I'll tell you something else and I shall be teaching about this tomorrow. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was 13. That's 73 years ago this Easter. That's in a week's time. 73 years. And I'll tell you something. The fire that fell on me when I was 13 is burning more strongly now. The fire of God and the power of God is, is stronger now because it gets stronger every, every day. And I'll teach you how to do it tomorrow. God bless you. Now go and buy the books. Come on. Buy the book which is, says David Hathaway and it'll tell you how God's done it in my life. Buy the book and read it and read this one. God bless you. Thank you.